Fate, Blue replied, glowering at her mother, is a very weighty word to throw around before breakfast. The Raven Boys, Chapter 3. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And And we're we're the the Raven Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Cycle podcast. Where we talk about four dysfunctional teenagers and their burgers with no sauce and no pickle. This is episode one, and we're covering the prologue through chapter three of The Raven Boys. We'll also be taking a deep dive on St. Mark's Eve. Disclaimers! This is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific, so you probably want to have read the books before listening. Most definitely, because we're going to be talking about the Raven King. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a teen plus rating, if podcasts had such things. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronan swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, but hopefully no great man violence. And with that, let's get started. So let's talk about characters first, starting with Blue. Blue is the daughter of a psychic. Mm-hmm. She's short. She's fierce. <laughs> she's feisty. Yes. Yes, yeah. she is. And she has no psychic abilities of her own is what's established early on in the books. Mm-hmm. And she has a curse of some kind that has been she doesn't quite know how it's going to manifest but basically if she kills her if she kisses her true love she will kill him as far as looks go aside from being short she has kind of darkish tan skin and Mm -hmm. short dark hair yeah yeah very very small all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gansey. is a rich boy, very, very extremely wealthy. Gansey, a.k.a. Richard Campbell Gansey III, a.k.a. Dick. <laughs> we initially meet Gansey as a spirit on the corpse road, but he's actually a student at a prestigious boys' school, Aglenby Academy. He's the son of politicians. I don't think it's ever specifically stated. What his, but it, what yeah. his dad does, anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's stated. Other um, than collect things that happen on a certain date in April, which whatever, dude. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I see it runs in the family. Mm-hmm. He has, like, the classic, like, rich boy good looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Described as presidential several times. As presidential, boys like him don't die. They get bronzed and installed in front of libraries. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the classic, what was it, classic word hero, I think, is, is one mm-hmm. of the descriptions. So, all-American, dark hair, hazel eyes and actually relatively short as well for Mm. for a guy i guess average i suppose and then ronan lynch is the snake later and ronan is also a rich boy he does not seem to appreciate it quite as much as gansey does he's angry and fierce and temperamental and argumentative and that's about what we start out with Mm-hmm. Yeah, he grew up relatively locally to the mm-hmm. area because the Barnes is less than a half an hour's mm-hmm. drive away. Probably, yeah. Like you said, like a real tough guy. He's also disca- described as shark-like. Mm-hmm. Dark hair, blue eyes, very tall, I guess. I mean, I always guess like around 6'2", 6'3", mm-hmm. at least. And 
Irish ancestry. Irish, yeah. correct, yeah. And then Adam Parrish. Adam Parrish is a local boy. He is working three jobs to put himself through Aglenby. He lives in a trailer park outside of Henrietta, rides a bicycle, and is friends with Gansey and Ronan through Aglenby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's from a very poor, disadvantaged family. Mm-hmm. The way his looks are described actually do put me in mind of a lot of people that I know from that area. It, there's a, a, a distinct look that mm-hmm. some of the guys mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yeah, I can I can see that. I wish I knew what that was because it's so hard for me to picture. <laughs> I don't have a really clear picture of what Adam looks like, but... I mean, I do have a distinct picture, but I don't know if my distinct picture is the same as mm-hmm. what would actually probably be local. So, yeah, we had had a conversation about, so you're from West Virginia, uh-huh. and there had been some notes of the color of dust in Virginia. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of a reddish coppery, where there's some sort of a reddish tinge to yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, an, almost like an auburn, mm-hmm. a brownish red. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. It's so not specifically called out, but it's interesting to kind of have that picture of it being a little bit reddish. Mm -hmm. And then as a character, I'd like to also talk about the pig, which (laughs) is a 1973 Camaro. I adore the pig as a character. It's constantly breaking down at the most plot relevant moments, inconvenient plot relevant moments, of course. And it's based on Maggie's blue Camaro. Well, I think she actually had a, an orange Camaro that broke down a lot. And she currently has a blue 73 Camaro named Loki. <laughs> and I just love the way she writes the pig because I grew up with Camaros. And everything about the way she writes the pig is very visceral. Everything from the, the floorboards getting <laughs> excruciatingly hot because they're so close to the engine. Yes. And the tiny back seat. Yes. See, so yeah, I might post a picture of some of the Camaros that I grew up with. So (laughs) let's start with the epigraphs on the Raven Boys. I just wanted to really briefly touch on the fact that I loved that the quote from Edgar Allan Poe, doubting, dreaming, dreams, no mortal. That's, of course, from the Raven, which I thought was amusing. And then touching on the fact that Oscar Wilde was a famously gay Irish poet. And I feel like we should probably unpack that. He was persecuted for his sexuality and might be a more relevant conversation, maybe for a deep dive in the Dream Thieves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That would be a really interesting thing to go into. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the prologue. The prologue opens with Blue Sergeant, the only daughter of a psychic mother, Mora, living in a house full of psychic women. Blue's grown up with a prediction about her future that seems really specific for the usual, like, imprecise way that the psychics in Foxway usually predict things. And the prediction is that if Blue were to kiss her true love, he would die. Blue has, of course, by the ripe old age of 16, decided this means that she will just simply never fall in love. Until one spring evening, when her half-aunt Neve comes to stay with them for a time, and along with Neve's bag, she has brought the warning, this is the year Blue will fall in love. 
So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about are the parallels between the way that the prologue of The Raven Boys is written and The Raven King is written. There are some very clear echoes from one book to the next, including starting with the very, very first line, Blue Sergeant has forgotten how many times she has been told that she would kill her true love. And The Raven King begins with Richard Gansey III had forgotten how many times he'd been told he was destined for greatness. And I just, I love the fact that there's that call back to the very, very beginning of the series in that final book. And there's a pretty obvious progression of how Gansey's story in, or uh, thought process in the beginning of The Raven King is mirroring Blue's thought process at the beginning of The Raven Boys. I found it interesting that in the very, very first sentence, there's no mention of the fact that it's her kiss that kills her true love. It's just that she's going to kill her true love. And you're like, wait, what? How? Like, does she stab him to death? (laughs) What is going on? And I was kind of interested in, like, how does that set Blue up as a character for that first page and a half before you know that it's her kissing him is Mm -hmm. going to kill him? It's a really interesting, like, question, because, like, I feel like that whole thing just kind of ties in to Blue's sense that there's something, like, less about her than, or, or wrong about her. Mm-hmm. You can see this in the way that she envisions this killing of her true love happening mm-hmm, over the mm-hmm. years. When she's really young, she's like, I'm going to contract some kind of, like, disease that I don't even know, I, and then just pass it on to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can totally see that kind of fatalism as a young child or or almost romanticizing. I feel like when she talks about it like that way, it's almost like that Victorian consumptive, uh-huh. like, oh, romanticizing the fact we'll die that together. She, yeah, well, yeah, or Romeo and Juliet sort uh-huh. of way of doing it. Mm, and and it's also interesting where she talks about how she tries to make it seem like, oh, I don't actually believe it, but it's clear she really does. Mm-hmm. She can't talk herself out of the belief that like this is going to come true somehow. Right. Yeah, I also uh, like the fact that as she's talking about how her family gives predictions, some of the very specific predictions that she mentions in her thoughts are money is coming. And Gansey actually calls this one out as a prediction that he gets all the time from psychics in chapter two. And you have a big decision that will not make itself is something that Adam kind of more or less gets when he goes for the reading later on. Mm -hmm. And then a piece of trivia. It's weird to me, both Maggie and then she gives Mora this quirk that she hates the word chuckle. And so I'm like, why does she actually uses it in this chapter? And I'm not quite sure why you would say a chuckle in the Walmart parking lot if you specifically hate a word. I feel like it kind of connects with the way she's trying to project that the general area views the Foxway ladies. Just kind of like as... Right, but not everybody hates the word chuckle. So is it like her internal uncomfortableness with the word chuckle therefore translate I mean it's like if I don't have a problem with the word chuckle it's not going to have that meaning for me Mm. So it, it, it could was, have been an unintentional thing that yeah, just came through with exactly mm. like hmm. So you hate this word and yet you put it in in this mm-hmm. the beginning of your book. And then I know you wanted to talk about um, the inversion of true love's first kiss, right? So the prediction is basically if Blue were to kiss her true love, he would die. 
And first off, it takes a a full page before an explanation that there's even a kiss involved. But she calls it out as something from a fairy tale, which I found really interesting because it's not. Mm -hmm. It's an inversion of the fairy tale of uh, true love's first kiss. Because usually, and I'm sure that there are fairy tales where it's different, but usually the true love's first kiss wakes them up out of a sleep or it transforms them from, you know, a curse. Like it actually usually breaks a curse. It doesn't actually fulfill um, fulfill the curse. And so the princess and the frog breaks Mm -hmm. the curse. There's some others like Beauty uh, and the Beast. Well, it's not really a kiss, but I was I was thinking East of the Sun, West of the Moon, I believe uh has that. Such a good fairy tale. (laughs) Such a good fairy tale. I know it's one of my favorites. So there's this interesting like she in her mind has internalized it as a fairy tale but it's it's actually the reverse right and i was trying to sit down and think about well are there any fairy tales where the kiss other than i think this is terrible but there's there's somewhere there's like a poison lipstick and the kiss is actually what puts someone to sleep. But I'm trying to remember if that's like an original version of Snow White or something like that. Or it could be a fractured fairy tale, something that stuck in my yeah, head. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I, familiar with anything like I that. I feel though. like there might be something with some some poison with a kiss. But I didn't do any research on that. But I just really thought that that was an interesting like, mm-hmm. nope. Blue, you actually... Yeah, the inversion is really uh-huh. interesting. The, the inversion is very interesting, so... And I really love, there's a line, she knew better. The predictions that came out of 300 Foxway were unspecific, but undeniably true. And it mentions that Mora dreams the future and later that Neve dreams the future and that clairvoyance basically seems to run in the family, including her Aunt Jimmy and Orla, her cousin. First off, I'd love like a family tree because I want to know who, mm-hmm. how are these ladies I know a- all these women are related. are related and how many are actually in this house because it's a jumble. It's basically a jumble of people, even though there are very few that are named people. There's always the implication that there are more there that we more. don't actually mm-hmm. see on screen. Um, and how many are actual relations and how many are like... Like just- Kella and Persephone found family type uh-huh. of relations. Yeah. But I love in the prologue, Maggie actually does manage to very succinctly and quickly give you every named character from 300 Fox Way and their relation to Blue. All in the prologue. Uh So you have everyone laid out right there in the very first chapter. And then by age 16, she has decided she would never fall in love just to call out that Maggie seems to forget her own timeline because the Blue's age, she seems to turn 18 in the beginning of Blue Lily, Lily Blue. And I think it's also confirmed as 18 somewhere in the Raven King. Didn't look up actual pages or anything like that, but I just was like, you lost a year, Blue. Where did that go? Somewhere in the timeline. Yeah. And Neve's arrival is established. She Neve shows up in spring. It's sometime before St. Mark's Eve. It establishes that Blue's never met Neve. That Neve is a bit disconcerting. That Mora is hiding something from Blue about Neve because she's whispering with Kala and Persephone and then they stop whispering when Blue comes in. That Neve is a little older than Mora, which I have no idea how old Mora is. I kind of picture her around 36. Like maybe she was only 20, 21 when Blue was born. Yeah, because they I, reference being kind of young and not making the best decisions mm-hmm, I, at that and time. I, 
she has a matronly but young young matronly yeah later in the notes i say it's almost a sisterly relationship which i can relate to because my mom and i were very Mm -hmm. close in age and that she was about 19 so maybe that's why i put more at about that age so neve and mora they didn't grow up together very rarely interacted they were half sisters I'm, I don't know. I'm guessing on the mom's side, I have no idea the genetics of psychic abilities. I mm-hmm. kind of feel like they're matrilineal, but that might just be. <laughs> it's not spelled mm-hmm. out in the text anywhere. I agree, though. It's like it definitely feels like it should be matrilineal. Uh-huh. Right. OK. Then at the end of the prologue, we have another parallel between the Raven Boys and the Raven King. Outside in the distance, hounds were crying. Blue was familiar enough with their voices. Blue knew what their frantic howls meant at that time. They were on the chase. And Gansey also hears the hounds at the end uh, at the end of the prologue of the Raven King in um, page three. And they're calling away, 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 which seems so melancholy to me. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that this is spring. So the prologue of this book is set in the spring. And the hounds are mentioned as something that Blue is familiar with from the fall. So and that is when Gansey is actually hearing them. Kind of makes me wonder why is she hearing these hounds in the spring? Is it an echo of Mm -hmm. something that's not? Like, is she not actually hearing the hounds or is it just? Yeah. Is it it something from the the ley line? Yeah. Is it something from the ley line? I almost said, is it like a like a psychopomp kind of a like, is it this magical precursor of this is this is the beginning. This is the beginning of this thing happening for Uh you. And then, of course, the very last line of the Raven Boys is this is the year you'll fall in love. And spoiler Stop the podcast here if you have not read The Raven King. This was actually one of the biggest spoilers for me of the whole series. Gandhi thinks this is the year he was going to die. And mm-hmm. those two parallels are so good. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, just like, yes. <laughs> and Navita is pointing to her arm I'm, showing goosebumps. I am. I'm <laughs> Have goosebumps. I'm like, it's so good. Like, I love the connections between those two. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's so Well, and it's you'll fall in love. He's going to die. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh so yes. Do you have anything else from the prologue that you'd like to cover? No, no, I don't th- I think I don't think so. I think we've pretty much okay. got everything. So moving on. In chapter one, Neve and Blue are enacting an annual vigil on a chilly St. Mark's Eve, waiting at an old church located on the ominously named Corpse Road for the spirits of the soon-to-be-dead to appear. It seems that those who are born locally walk the Corpse Road as a precursor to their deaths in the coming year, and usually Mora and Blue take down their names. Blue is relegated to the task of writing down the names as she does not have any ability to see spirits, but only makes other women's psychic abilities strong. Stronger. This year, however, is different. Blue sees the spirit of someone who appears to be young, a student at the local rich boy school, Aglenby. Neve can't get his name, so Blue asks, and the spirit replies, Gansey, that's all there is. Neve notes that there are only two reasons that Blue, as a non-seer, would see this boy's spirit. Either Blue kills him, or he's her true love. Or both. Or both. <laughs> 
I love Maggie's first lines. I just, I just do. There's, there's so, so many that I'm just. That's so perfect. It's almost like she writes a seminar about how to make first lines amazing. (laughs) (laughs) She has a whole workshop on how to how to craft perfect first lines. That is awesome. I would totally love to go to that because that is something that she's really good at. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it was freezing in the courtyard even before the dead arrived. Yeah, just... It's very evocative. Yes, it It, is. And not only that, but even before the dead arrive Mm -hmm. says that it will be colder when the dead arrive. Uh It's laid out in... Eight, like word, eight words. Ten, 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 <laughs> eleven words. Eleven words it's laid out that there's, that is a symptom of having a dead spirit around you is that it's cold. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So it's St. Mark's Eve, and mm-hmm. we'll get into a little bit more about what that means in mm-hmm. in a little bit. Blue and her half-aunt Neve are standing watching the churchyard, and they're waiting for the spirits of people who will die in the coming year to come through the gate. It's really interesting to uh, think about the way that spirits are treated in the book. Mm-hmm, like you're saying, mm-hmm. like e- even in that first 11, 11 words, mm-hmm. you get a feeling of, of what it means right. to have a spirit around. Mm-hmm. And Blue's inner dialogue focuses on her worry that she's less than or missing something because she's not psychic like the rest of her family. Mm-hmm. Blue had always gone and she would go again. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is just something that she did. It talks later right. on about like being relegated to paperwork. Right. There is an interesting quote, and I don't have it written down, about how Mora won't tell her to go and do something. It's an uh-huh. imperative question mark. And I love imperative question mark uh-huh. as, as just a way that a parent might ask yes. someone, a child, to do something. Mm hmm. I also like the line, it wasn't a night for ordinary eyes. It was a night for seers and psychics, witches and mediums. Right. My favorite was actually the sightless, restless gargoyle. Because A, gargoyles are made of stone, so of course they can't actually see anything. Uh-huh. But it's sightless because it's blue. Right. <laughs> and I was like, that is so good. Uh-huh. And the only thing special about her was something that she herself couldn't experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as included as a seeing eye dog. Uh-huh, I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. And the, the whole telephone I hear about as much as the telephone here. Uh-huh. She's, she's just transferring the energy from one place to another. Uh-huh. These are all foreshadowing as well. Like the always gone would go again. Indicates the cyclical nature mm-hmm, of how everything mm-hmm. is, is going on in the series. And Gwynthlian calls Blue a witch and Blue Lily Lily Blue. And, right. And that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when they're talking about Neve's mirror magic and... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, on the surface, it's Blue looking for her something more and wanting to just, wanting needed to feel less like a synonym for useful. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the line that really got me was she didn't want Neve to think she was experiencing an identity crisis over it, even though she clearly is. Yes, she absolutely <laughs> is. <laughs> you can try to lie to people about it, but you're obviously, your identity is really wrapped up in this. Mm-hmm. And I 
thought as a blue mission statement, she wasn't interested in telling other people's futures. She was interested in going out and finding her own. I both find that to be true and to be false, because I think that if she had the ability to tell people's futures, she would probably accept that ability. But because she doesn't have that ability to tell people's futures, she therefore says, okay, I have to accept that this is the way my life is. I need to go out and find Mm -hmm. my own. That also ties into a little bit to like all the times that she's talking about herself being sensible Mm -hmm, and how mm -hmm. she doesn't really like that about herself. Right. And it's just like the way that she's grown up, she's had to be like, okay, I can't have this. So I have to look for something else for to be my thing. Right. I think it's really important in this general area of the first chapter to look at Blue and how she views Aglinby because she's talking to Neve, who is an out of towner mm-hmm. and Neve doesn't know anything about the locals and sort of Neve is almost working as an audience proxy here because we don't know anything about Aglinby and the only opinions that we are going to form at this point are the opinions that Blue has. Right. So one of my favorite lines of all of the books is the cars that spoke German. Because it's so evocative. evocative. You it's, know exactly what she's talking about. Yes. It's I just, with again, with four uh-huh. words, I, I can picture the parking lot of Aglinby and the Mercedes and the BMWs. Uh-huh. I mean, I, like, I don't need anything else except for those four words to see the gleaming cars. Uh-huh. And then the sons of mistresses living off hush money. It's, it's like... Not just for legitimate, legitimate, and I'm air quoting Mm -hmm. there, legitimate businessmen. It's also for anyone who's rich enough to go. And then, come on, boys in shorts so tacky that only the rich would wear them. I yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but it's so it's so calling out Gansey, Gansey before we yes. even know, we even know anything about Gansey. And then the advancing army bent on destruction. <laughs> and these are what blue Blue's feeling about these Raven Boys mm-hmm. is at this point our feelings about these Raven Boys. And because of these feelings is where Blue comes in with Blue had developed her her two rules. One, stay away from boys because they were trouble. And two, stay away from Aglinby boys because they were bastards. Mm -hmm. And that really, for us as a reader, sets us up to hate the boys when we see them because they're a part of this world that Blue has said is terrible. Uh And I'd like to talk about St. Mark's Eve. Deep dive. Deep dive. From Wikipedia. St. Mark's Eve is the day before the feast day of St. Mark the Evangelist. In liturgical Christian churches, this feast of St. Mark is observed on the 25th of each year. Thus, St. Mark's Eve is 24th of April. A couple of trivia bits. Maggie said that she discovered the folklore of St. Mark's Eve first through researching the ley lines. And then that information is actually what influenced the creation of Blue's curse and prediction of true love. James Montgomery and John Keats both wrote poems about St. Mark's Eve. Montgomery's work is pretty relevant, I thought. And here's an excerpt. The Vigil of St. Mark by John Montgomery, and it was published in 1906. Tis now replied the village bell, St. Mark's Mysterious Eve, 
And all that old traditions tell, I tremblingly believe, how when the midnight signal tolls along the churchyard green, a mournful train of sentenced souls in winding sheets are seen, the ghosts of all whom death shall doom within the coming year, in pale procession walk the gloom amid the silence drear. There were several fortune-telling devices associated with St. Mark's Eve throughout folklore and history. And they all seem to revolve around true love or death. Of note, Edith Rudkin in 1936 wrote in some folklore records in Lincolnshire, on St. Mark's Eve, all those who are going to die or be married can be seen by anyone who watches in the church porch at midnight as they come into the church in spirit in that night. And it seems to be mostly an English custom. The ghosts do come into the church between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., which is actually said in the books. And then the ones that are supposed to die earlier appear earlier in the night. So the closer to the next St. Mark's Eve, the later they'll be coming through. And then watchers are admonished to keep silent, which seems to be a theme for all of the fortune telling things that I discovered. There was one kind of funny story about a vicar. I think it was a vicar, uh, just as a clergyman, who actually did a St. Mark's vigil and saw his own ghost. Oh, no. And then basically got so frightened that he went home and then he died within the year. Like, oh, he no. basically gave himself a nervous breakdown by doing the St. Mark's vigil and seeing himself. It's like... Maybe you shouldn't do that. So that, <laughs> that that was pretty funny. And then there were a couple of other different ways to tell if someone was going to die. One of them being that a spirit will walk through the hearth ashes of your home. And then the shoes of the person who's going to die will actually have ashes on the bottom, which I thought was interesting because you could really... I was going to really say, that would be a really... By putting their shoes in the uh, ashes. That would be a really mean <laughs> trick. It would be awful. And then the other the other side of it, which also ties into Blue's curse, was that there were several ways that unmarried women could do fortune telling on St. Mark's Eve. Things like hanging their smock above the fire and then like the spirit of their, or some sort of apparition of their husband was supposed to come in and steal their dress. <laughs> <laughs> like, who came up with this stuff? And um, how would you find it? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I don't. It's supposed to be. I think it was supposed to be hanging over the fire, and then they're supposed to watch. Oh, they're supposed I to see. watch, and then yeah, they'll yeah. see the apparition of a man come and like take their dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I don't don't I, don't ask me. Um, and then there was one about basically putting nuts in the fire, and then saying a little charm that the nuts would represent, or like they would. Kind of, I guess, kind of like, anyway, like all of the the true love, like... Pop tabs? Yeah, kind of like those, or like the head of a daisy, or the head Uh of a whatever. Anyway, if they named the nut... And oh, they put it in the fire. And if, then that one popped and, first. And well, if the nut jumped away from them into the fire, then it wasn't supposed to be that person. Uh, but if it jumped towards them, then that meant that person was going to be the one that they married. Okay. And then the one that I thought was the most interesting was the making of a dumb cake, mm-hmm. which I have a lot of interesting information about, but we're going to actually skip through a lot of it. It seemed to be made of the worst possible ingredients. I found an article that was published in 1890 with a recipe 
for Dumb Cake. And I'll post all of this because I, th- I think it's fascinating. But the most important thing was it should be made by four persons and each must supply these things of sand, flour, bran, salt and brick dust, each a thimbleful the parings of their own nails and some hair from the back of the head cut up fine and strewn in. This must be mixed to a stiff paste on a sheet of writing paper, which must be gilt edged. This seems quite an important feature of the charm. (laughs) And then they basically have to stay completely silent again and then they bake it and then they cut it up and there's like a whole thing. If you want to get three of your best friends together and do this on next St. Mark's Eve... I highly recommend it, and you can let us know what happens. I don't. The dumb, the dumb cake sounds disgusting. Oh, yeah. No, it's... I don't even know that you're supposed to eat it. I mean, I'm hoping, but there's... I did also find there were some reports of fatalities from dumb cakes due to inedible ingredients. Oh, my goodness. And most... <laughs> I don't even know the word. I don't even know the adjective that I'm going for. The silliest? I mean whatever people chose to put in basically hallucinogenic potentially hallucinogenic and poisonous plants oh no so uh mistletoe was put in dumb cakes and then people ate it and it's super poisonous so don't do this (laughs) do not put mistletoe in your dumb cake do not write us if you put mistletoe in your dumb cake we do not endorse because they'll be dead (laughs) dead. So there there was also one other thing that I thought was interesting, although kind of unrelated to anything in the books, was that there's supposedly a small fly named St. Mark's fly that hatches during this time. And it has some kind of possible ties to resurrection, which may or may not be a theme. <laughs> so yeah, back to analysis. This is where we get our first real look at how spirits work. This is where we get a more Mm -hmm, in-depth look mm -hmm. look at how this goes. The church is on what's called a ley line Mm -hmm. or a corpse road, road, Mm -hmm. which is just like a line of energy that stretches from one point to another. Right. And every year on St. Mark's Eve, the spirits of those who will die that year walk through the graveyard gate. Blue is unable to see them herself, Mm -hmm. except for Gansey, which we'll get to in a minute. But she can sense them, even if she doesn't know exactly that's what she's doing. Right. It's mentioned several times that the presence of spirit manifests as coldness. Like we were talking about, Mm -hmm. it was cold even before the dead arrived. The implication seems to be that this is something Blue is specifically susceptible to because of her abilities, because invisible spirits with no warmth of their own sucked her energy, pulling goosebumps up her arm. I had a little aside here about living or being in a haunted house, because in the real world, again, air quotes, that's a pretty standard ghost behavior where temperatures will drop in a room. They'll drain batteries out of your equipment if you're trying to record them. Those types of things. I've never lived in a house that was haunted. The house I grew up in is within seeing distance of a graveyard. (laughs) The dead have to stay on the ley line Mm -hmm. because they have to draw the energy from it to exist. And when Blue sees Gansey, who is the first spirit she's ever seen, Mm -hmm. she's surprised by how hesitant and lost he looks because she expected expected it to be more of a march and just, just like with purpose and knowing where they're going. But mm -hmm. we don't know anything other than what Blue is seeing. So we have no idea if the other spirits are being Mm, orderly. It's true because we never hear anybody say 
We have no idea. It's just her perception of uh-huh. what this one spirit that she's seeing is doing. And now we get to Gansey. And Gansey's spirit, which is described as basically formless and featureless, but still somehow telling the mind to see a human boy. Right. The quote is, there was nothing about him really that made him human shaped, but still she saw a boy. And this is exactly how Noah is described in Blue Lily, Lily Blue when he's starting uh-huh. to decay. That it's not that Noah is actually a boy, but her brain is telling her that she that he's a boy. Mm-hmm. Blue recognizes the, the sweater that Gansey is wearing as an Agwambi, you know, part of the Agwambi uniform. Mm-hmm. And it's the rain-soaked Agwambi jacket, which is actually Henry's jacket. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I just love to make a note of that. Yeah. Yeah, I digress. Blue is also aware of and deeply distressed by the lifelike gestures, as she puts it, that Gansey's spirit makes. Fingers to the temple, which, which is basically like... As you were saying, his... Uh, his, his frustrated uh-huh. pose. Like, it's when he's confused or not quite angry, but it tends to come out when Ronan... <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> when he's dealing with Ronan for certain things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's one of his signature moves. Mm-hmm. And just looking at Blue's reactions to him and the way she she reacts to his spirit just makes me think that... She's already in love with him by the time his spirit disappears in a lot in, in some mm-hmm. ways. Blue describes Well, do you that, think that's because like his spirit is somehow calling to her or she just instinctually knows that this is someone that she's supposed to know or I, I don't know. Because I, there is the whole like yeah, you have it here, a dangerous sucking sadness and Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, like I think that sums it pretty sums it up pretty well cuz she describes a feel, her feeling after seeing the spirit as mm. a dangerous sucking sadness seems to be opening up inside her, grief or regret. Mhm. And, and it's, yeah. it's in the next blue chapter as well that it kind of wells up inside of uh-huh. There were also a couple of uh, things that I wanted to mention that I particularly liked or found important that didn't really fit with the specific themes we were we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And first is like, this is the point where we first hear that Gansey, that's all there is, mm-hmm. which is like a recurring phrase throughout right. the book. It's a re- good refrain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just find it kind of haunting. Mm-hmm. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> the second is the way that the ley line symbol shows up in like a three beat. Mm-hmm. And we get the first two beats of that here in the prologue. Well, the first one's in the prologue. The second one is in chapter one. Oh, right. The third one is in chapter, chapter two. two. Right. Because Mora, Mora draws it in the, in, in, the, the shower. in the shower. And then Neve drawing it in the dirt is here. Mm-hmm. And then Gansey does it later on. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the psychics mention multiple multiple times that three is a powerful number right three psychics three ley lines converging Mm -hmm. and richard richard campbell gansey the The third third. the nerd (laughs) Uh and um the last thing i wanted to mention is how i love the way that maggie throws in stuff that lets me know she actually knows the area she's writing about she um, does live there. Yeah, I I, I know, but it's just <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice your home. To see. It's your home. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The descriptions in the I night. just thought this was I, when I was reading this. I'm like, she did grow up in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> so 
and it shows. Yes, yes. Go ahead. Go <laughs> That's ahead. all I'm saying. Yes. Because like the description, the night sounds with the insects mm. bugs buzzing and the the mockingbirds whistling back and forth and the ravens yelling at the cars. Like, right. Yeah, that right. is spot on. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that Neve is kind of automatically somewhere between mistrusted or underestimated because mm-hmm. she's she's an outsider, and that's totally how it works. Mm-hmm. And it's like because of course Neve an outsider wouldn't know, or she got famous doing loudly what Blue's mother did softly, right, or quietly. And echoes things that I've heard about people who move into the area from out of town right. or move away, move away, and then come back. Like I've heard it about myself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like you know. And the comment about the valley being dominated by several old families that are large, if not powerful. Yeah, like immediately some like names popped into my head of family names from back homes. Like, yeah, that's the kind of people they're talking about. Right. And also, yes, people say pshaw. <laughs> this is a thing that I texted Shannon. I was like, do people really say pshaw? Is it... Like dude in California? <laughs> Probably not. Not exactly. No. <laughs> not in not in the same way, but if you had to think of a thing that people it's, said in California, it'd be dude. It's more like, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I don't really have anything to add. I interjected what I had. So, yeah, you covered it pretty thoroughly there. Okay. That leads us to chapter two. Gansey, after a night of his own St. Mark's vigil, is broken down by the side of the road in his impudently orange Camaro. Calls his roommate and classmate, Ronan Lynch, to come pick him up, and requests that Ronan bring along their other friend, Adam Parrish. When the other two boys show up, burger in tow, Gansey hands Ronan a recorder to listen to while Adam deflects Ronan's older brother on Ronan's own phone. Then he works on the pit. It seems Gansey caught his own voice speaking to an unknown someone the night before, but insists he didn't actually say anything all night. The boys all talk about the ley lines, what can be found on them, and Adam give, gives Gansey a number for a psychic. Again, I love the connection between the closing line of chapter one and the opening of chapter two. There are only two reasons a non-seer would see a spirit on St. Mark's Eve, Blue. Either you're his true love, Needs said, or you killed him. It's me, said Gansey. Yeah, I also love this irony cut. And Maggie does this in several chapters. Mm -hmm. It just, it works really well. This is so, again, just talking about the way the writing is really visceral, but the, a semi-truck roared by without pause. The Camaro rocked in its wake. And for some reason, I, I am there. I can feel the hot wind. I can smell the exhaust of the semi-truck. I can feel the shudder of the car moving. Mm. Just in such a tiny, tiny little phrase. And just like, hear the engine. I am there. I, I've i been there. I've seen that. I've felt that. And I'm 100% in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> You you said, um, I'm, I know that Navita wants to talk, talk about, about the, the dead, dead in the, the ditch, ditch line. line. <laughs> I was like, no, my note was actually my only note on this was, and then I fell in love. <laughs> Tuna, <sighs> yes, we were talking earlier that I don't even know that I would love this line so much if it hadn't been that I listened to the audiobooks first. And I just, Will Patton nails, nails that line and the next one, which is probably actually when I fell in love was when when the next one happened. There's something here. Um, Gansey thinks about camping. He thinks back on the previous night and how it was nothing like camping before when he was a kid. And I guess he went camping once as a child with his dad. And it was an idling Range Rover parked nearby for when he and his father lost interest. And I 
it ugh, it's it is one of those moments where I'm like, Gansy, come on, dude. Like camping's I don't know. It just gives me that icky rich boy feeling of almost mm-hmm. poverty tourism. But it also I find it interesting because it doesn't really jive with what we know about Gansey later, which is he's actually pretty outdoorsy type. He has his own spelunking equipment that he's obviously used over and over. He hiked himself across Poland. He's visited Montana. Like, it's just a kind of a glimpse of a rich boy Gansey. And I wonder if it's almost a deliberate setup, like we're still supposed to right. not like him because of the perspective that we got from Blue in the previous chapter. Mm-hmm. I always have to laugh at Gansey's pouting. It's thought of like, I would have gotten notes for Ronan. I mean, come on, dude. <laughs> Ronan does not care and probably would have set the notes on fire. Well, I mean, <laughs> we realize that, but I just think it's funny no, that but like... Gansey has known Ronan longer <laughs> than anyone. He should know that Ronan does not care. Mm-hmm. I also like the line of, there's nothing little Henrietta Virginia preferred over seeing humiliating things happen to Aglimby boys, unless it was seeing humiliating things happen to their families. Which mm-hmm. I think is a really good description of the area, mm-hmm. and also really foreshadows Welk's backstory. Right. It is definitely foreshadowing Welk. And we've had this conversation. How small is Henrietta? I need a number. I need to know how many Starbucks are in this town. <laughs> how many stoplights? Because I grew up in a tiny town. You grew up in a tiny uh-huh. town. And I'm trying to wrap my head around how big Henrietta actually is. And I just can't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not clear at all. Mm-mm. The description of the, of the stuff that's in the pig. Mm-hmm. I really like that, too. There's an EpiPen. Yeah, my note was Chekhov's EpiPen. <laughs> but it, it is, it's somewhat inverted to what we believe Chekhov's gun means now, because it doesn't ever get used. Mm-hmm. But still, we're led to believe that it will be at some point. Mm-hmm. Beef jerky that had probably been there when Gandhi bought the car. Gansey's journal, a willow stick. Yeah, and you had had the note, a willow dowsing rod, and I correct, uh-huh. I corrected that, I'm sorry. It's because <laughs> it's not actually stated that it's a dowsing rod, so it's mm-hmm. kind of like, why would he have a willow stick? If you didn't know that it's for dowsing, you'd be like, mm-hmm. uh, and he has a willow stick, random. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of Nino's receipts, mm-hmm. and an open CD binder. right. And I want to know why he has CDs. I don't know why you're so, you're hung up on the CDs. I I don't know why. It's like, it's, it's like, it's 2012 and he's rich. He would have had an iPod or an MP3 player and the pig was like a 73. Yeah. So it wouldn't have uh even had eight track. Well, our 67 had eight track, but it was aftermarket eight track. So, Mm -hmm. and it's like, yeah, there, there would have been no way to like even play the CDs. Right. And I don't. I don't remember if Gansey actually talks about who he bought the pig from, and I don't think he does. But I I have a feeling he's only had the pig for a year, maybe two at the mm-hmm. most. Remembering that he's 17 years old, he only bought it maybe a year or so ago. So I doubt that he put a CD player in. I'm fairly <laughs> sure it was put in. In the by 90s, somebody else. Yeah. by someone else, by some dude who wore his <laughs> uh, cap on backwards, you know, uh-huh. there was... So I have a feeling that Gansey had nothing to do with the CD player. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could even be like maybe that it's part of the fact that even though this is like presumably still the real pig, even though we don't really know that. Yeah. 
it's the real pig at this point. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but I mean, unless there's a real type fuckery. <laughs> but it's, it's possible. Still, it still acts in a way that's supernatural. Some... Yes and no. Uh-huh. I have a feeling that the pig is just really finicky. And so therefore, when the ley line goes crazy, the pig breaks down because it's finicky, not because the pig's supernatural. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's my feeling on that particular ley line surges and supernatural mm-hmm. activity. It's just that it's more finicky, so therefore it can't handle it. Right. And then, yeah, the collection of stuff in the back of the Camaro is Gansey in a nutshell. The tiny, tiny Camaro backseat shaped nutshell mm-hmm. because it's so tiny. <laughs> backseat of a I do not understand how they fit three quote teenagers because one of them doesn't really exist but like we had three small children in the back of our Camaro and it was awful (laughs) I don't I think the pig might actually be a TARDIS not not a supernatural thing it's a science fiction thing (laughs) that would be cool uh yeah the time lord he is a time lord. His own time. Yes. Time is circular. Um, and then it's established here that Gansey has been in Henrietta for 18 months. And then this, back to the time lord thing, it gets wibbly wobbly mm-hmm. later on. But basically he started at Aglenby right before his sophomore year, presumably. And he also states that he's 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And then there is a joke here that I have to call out because it makes me laugh every time. All the sources said that the church watchers had to possess the second sight, and Kenzie barely possessed the first sight before he put his contacts in. Uh-huh. <laughs> it really cracks me up. It's so. really funny. Yeah. The scene where Gansey draws the ley line symbol and the dust in his shoe, it also does a good job of summing up Gansey and his relationship to the quest and to Henrietta. As the mountain breeze rushed over his ears, it sounded like a hushed shout, not a whisper, but a loud cry from almost too far away to hear. The thing was, Henrietta looked like a place where magic could happen. The valley seemed to whisper secrets. It was easier to believe that they wouldn't give themselves up to Gansey rather than that they didn't exist at all. His head hurt with the wanting of it, the hurt no less painful for being difficult to explain. This, when combined with the bit closer to the end of the chapter where Gansey talks about his knack for finding things Mm -hmm. and the responsibility he feels to do something with that ability and a belief that certain secrets require you to prove yourself worthy. Right. I feel like it's a really solid first look into Gansey, his personality and his mental landscape. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I wanted to put a pin in the Valley Seem to Whisper Secrets because... Welk hears whispers Mm -hmm. and it's due to his failed attempt to wake the ley line. So how much of Gansey being drawn to Henrietta has to do with Caves Water speaking to him after the resurrection the first time Mm -hmm. and basically being involved in that sacrifice? Right. So good question. We see Adam and Ronan show up. And it's really interesting to compare and contrast Gansey's thoughts between the two of them. Gansey's describes Adam as neat, slender, with knitted eyebrows. And Ronan as shark-like, slams everything, disreputable, and thin and sharp. <laughs> and uh, there are some quotes. This is beautiful. Adam's Aglenby sweater was secondhand, but he had taken great care to be certain it was impeccable. He was slim and tall, with dusty hair unevenly cropped, above a fine bone tanned face. He was a sepia photograph. 
And then Ronan, his tie was knotted with the method. I can't even get through it. His tie was knotted with a method best described as contempt. If his BMW was shark-like, it had learned how from him. And if it had had a social security number, Ronan had fought with it. (laughs) Ronan dissolved what was left of his heart in electronic loops. Yeah, just the descriptions are so Mm. eloquent. Yeah, and there is the sort of third-person narrator describing these, but you have to take into account that this is actually how Gansey is seeing his friends Uh as well. Yeah, you noted, uh, Navita will probably want to talk about Ronan and Declan and the shark-like BMW, and I said, you bet your butt I will. (laughs) (laughs) But Declan is on the phone with Adam. Declan is Ronan's older brother by only a year. He's a senior at Aglenby. It's really interesting that Ronan has Adam and Gansey running interference for him with Declan. And Gansey notes that freedom in the Lynch family was a complicated thing. And at the moment, Declan held the keys to it. We're never really told what happened to make Ronan hate Declan and Declan to be so bitter about Ronan. I mean, Declan has legit reasons to be bitter about Ronan, but Mm -hmm. what actually happened? Um, Don't we get a moment later on that talks about how part of it was Ronan stealing like one of the cars? He steals the BMW, but it, what I don't know. Like, what was that catalyst? I mm-hmm. what we one can only make assumptions because it's not lined out, right? And Gansey just resents having to deal with their relationship, and Adam barely tolerates their relationship. Uh huh. I like the line where it's talking about Adam and Ronan's relationship. And it's like last week he and Adam had taken turns dragging each other on a moving dolly behind them being W and they both still had the marks to show it. Mm-hmm, it's like, maybe mm-hmm. it's just because like, I love the pinch relationship, the pinch oh, no. pairing so much. But I, I think that is like, I love that, that scene. Yes. I think it's adorable. It is adorable. I take some, I, not quite sure how to say it, but it's like, wait a second. There's a whole scene of Ronan teaching Adam how to drive the BMW. So how could he have driven the BMW pulling Ronan earlier? <laughs> Question mark. I, eh. Is it a continuity error? Is it just maybe he kept it in first uh, first gear the whole time? Who knows? <laughs> um, maybe he stalled it a bunch. Who knows? But um, I really love this scene, too. It is goddamn adorable. It also shows Ronan bringing Adam out of his shell. Mm-hmm. Adam is quiet. He is consistently described as being quiet. And I find it interesting when, and this is so far in the future, when Gansey says that Blue makes him quiet, Adam's like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh-huh. Ronan makes Adam loud. Ronan makes Adam let go. Ronan brings Adam out of his mind and into his physicality. And that is set up in this tiny, uh-huh. tiny little scene. That part of their relationship is set up here. Mm-hmm. And then Ronan did not smoke. He preferred his habits with hangovers. And this is where I, I, I gave up highlighting anything about Ronan. I just was like, Psh, all right, I'm done. Like, I'm because in. everything about Ronan you just love. Yeah. I'll just consider it highlight. Yeah, I'll just consider it. And this is where Gan- he calls Gansey a geezer. So if you're Take following along, if you're following along on my every time that Gansey is referred to as an old dude drinking game, take a drink. <laughs> I'm going to make a very, I have a Trader Joe's finest rosé. <laughs> And she's taking a drink. 
I am taking a drink. One of the things that I found interesting was Gansey here talking about the icy shrills of crickets and bugs that shouldn't be alive. Why is he hearing <laughs> and seeing bugs when Blue specifically in the prologue of chapter one is like the, it's talking about how she specifically notes the absence of insect life. I noted that too. It made no sense whatsoever, except that maybe the insects are affected by the spirits. And Gansey doesn't actually encounter any spirits. He is only hearing an echo that is being right. brought to him down the ley line. Mm-hmm. I, but again, you think, but you would think that Blue m- would be used to that then, like because it would it would seem like it would happen every year. If there yeah, I, it's one of those like, is it an editing error or is it like actually supposed to mean something? Uh huh. Yeah, the recording, there's a couple of things that are kind of funky about the recording in general, because when Gansey plays the recording, he says Gansey, and then there's murmuring in the background that he can't catch, and it's like questions and answers. And then Blue asks, is that all? And Gansey says that's all there is. is. In the description from Blue's side... All you get is all You get silence, unless... And I realized this just today, unless you can just think that maybe Neve is in the background, still asking the other spirits you know, yeah, walking back and maybe forth. That's so, what... so maybe he's hearing Neve's voice murmuring in the background. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no, there's Blue doesn't say there's nothing Blue says on the other end. So, but yeah, it's either time fuckery or it's, yeah, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the recording... Let's talk about EVP for a minute. Yeah. Because Gansey actually gives a good description of the concept as an audio haunting. Mm-hmm. It's like where the voices of spirits or sounds from the past events aren't necessarily heard in real life, but they'll show up on tape when the, when you play the tape back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what Gansey's voice on the recorder is. It's, it's an EVP. And I think hearing your own voice as an EVP would be super, like, creepy and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and disconcerting. We could probably do a deep dive on EVP at some point later on. Because yeah, or even just ghost hunting in, gen- uh-huh, in general. Yeah, because, you know, the, the real world, like, phenomenons and stuff mm-hmm. are really, really interesting. Even if you don't believe in it, the stories of what might actually be happening right. like, are, are kind of interesting. Gansey says here, when he has Ronan start the recording... Gansey is quite certain he's not a spirit. And I'm like, are, really? Are you sure? Yeah, I, I was wondering the same thing. Are, are you sure you're not? Are you sure you're not a spirit? Mm-hmm. It's like, when does he actually figure it out? Because you can tell, like, on my second read through anyway, mm-hmm, I can tell mm-hmm. at one point they're like, yeah, he knows. Right. But I don't know, like, when exactly he figures it out. In the prologue of the Raven King, I believe that he says that he feels that it's confirmed at the reading. But he mm-hmm. has gotten clues up until then. Uh-huh. But I'd have to actually go back to the Raven King and see that. Mm-hmm. And this is also the first instant, instance of the I don't believe in coincidences right. theme. It's another refrain, right? And then Ronan's like, holy grail, finally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Gansy's like, he's, he's being too sarcastic to be helpful. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gansy. I find sarcasm extremely helpful <laughs> in all circumstances. I object. <laughs> yeah. 
I was also intrigued by the uh, discussion of Gansey's old colleagues. Because mm-hmm. the, there's the very old British professor, which is obviously Mallory. Right. I wonder about the museum curator in New Mexico or or the Roman historian. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, wonder who they are. Right. And I was like, well, maybe we'll see them in the TV show someday. That'd be nice. This was interesting to me because this is where he says that he started his quest in earnest four years ago, which means he was 13. Mm-hmm. When he decided to go across the world and search for Glendower. And his parents let him. Well, he says that he was in boarding schools, but that he didn't actually do much with the boarding schools. Mm. So he had a place to live and food and all of that, but he was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So Gansey's mission statement, which you touched on earlier, some secrets only gave themselves up to those who had proven themselves worthy. Mm-hmm. I think that is really strongly a part of Gansey's character. Mm-hmm. Welk, when he drives by and doesn't stop, is a really nice parallel to mm-hmm. the scene later on in the book where the pig is broken down again and Welk actually does stop and takes the opportunity to assault Gansey and steal the journal. Mm-hmm. I love the interaction about the burger. And the reason why is because it just proves Ronan and Adam know Gansey. And they know that he doesn't like pickles or sauce on his burger. Mm-hmm. He knows it. They know it without being told. Like, not only that, but they care enough to make sure that they order the burgers without pickles and sauce. Uh-huh. And that, to me, that's that moment is a moment of friendship. Like, it when is. You, when you're picking up food for the dude broken down on the side of the road that like you don't even want to go and rescue anyway and you have to pick up a burger but you like you know that he doesn't like pickles and sauce mm-hmm. you just, order it without pickles and sauce man that's what you do you just take the time you and, just, you, and that, to me it's so evocative of a friendship they it might really is. they might be contentious but they deeply love each other mm-hmm Adam's southern accent showing up when he's uncertain or under stress. Mm-hmm. Code switching is a thing, and I do it all the time. Yeah, and I've heard that from other people from the south or your region where their accent will come and go depending mm-hmm. on who they're speaking if to. I'm, if I'm talking to my mom mm-hmm. or, or getting really, like, involved about talking about home, mm-hmm. it shows up really strongly. Or right. if I get mad. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I've ever heard your accent. I'm sure. (laughs) What I loved is Adam tried so hard to hide his roots, but they came out in the smallest of ways. It just breaks my heart, my baby. And then there's the observation. Even Adam's letters always look like they were running from something. And I'm like, oh. It's so sweet. (laughs) I really want us to keep an eye out for all of the handwriting in the books because they are uh always described as being reflective of the owner. Yeah. Of their personalities. The Leyline Pop Quiz is another mm-hmm. bit that I really liked. It's, it's a it's yeah. it's a brilliant bit of foreshadowing, actually. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, everything that's mentioned is something that shows up later on in the series. Everything except for the Camaro that... Hey, that, hey! <laughs> Camaros um, are totally objects of spiritual power. <laughs> I don't know where you get off on saying that Ronan's contribution to this conversation is not as legitimate as the no, other No, I'm ones. not saying it's not legitimate. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm just saying that it's like, it's not, hey, broken mirrors are not specifically things that are, that show up on ley lines. Well, but we just had a conversation about how broken down Camaros show up on ley lines because they're finicky and break down when the ley lines <laughs> surge. Ronan has a point, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, the black dog is uh-huh. possibly the dog. Mm-hmm. Demonic presences, the well, demon, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Ronan's Camaro, which, <laughs> which, like, yes, like it's from it's Dream Thieves. Like right, that's yeah. that's the point of Dream Thieves, <laughs> and then Ghosts, which is Noah. But then note that Gansey immediately after saying Ghosts tells Ronan to cue the evidence, effectively calling himself a ghost. That's that is also true, right? And then I just the Stevie Nicks song. That sound like it's, that sounds like it says mm-hmm. one winged dove. Like right. I read that and I was like, "That's not the lyrics." Yeah, it's it's white winged dove. And like, yeah, I know that now because I looked it up. <laughs> but like all this time, I've always thought that it was. Oh, that cracks me up. <laughs> what I love about this is that like CB Nicks is very much my mental picture of Persephone is basically Stevie Nicks. Uh huh. And is she sort of a patron saint of witches or witchy women? And so like, I'd like, like to she think... even shows up like she's even like a she's big in the a coven. Major, I was going to yeah. say, oh, whoops, spoilers, spoilers for the coven. If you haven't seen it, American Horror Story <laughs> Coven, um, <laughs> she's a big plot point in American in, Horror yeah. Story Coven. But I like to think that the pig is actually telling Gansey something here uh-huh. because Stevie Nicks shows up and then he's given a phone number for a psychic. Uh huh. <laughs> so we we end with another irony cut. Adam says we find out who you were talking to, and then we jump, jump to, to blue. Blue's point P- of view, P- yeah. So chapter three. Blue awakens in the afternoon, missing the morning chaos of 300 Fox Way and all of its female inhabitants fighting for space. It seems that she slept in for the first time after a St. Mark's Eve vigil, completely drained by the spirits who walked through her and used her energy the night before. Blue asks if there is any way to warn Gansey about his impending demise, but Mora advises against it. Neve offers to scry into Gansey's death, but is stymied when he disappears somewhere along the ley line. Neve is somewhat accusatory of Mora for not letting Neve know all about the spiritual energies of Henrietta and of Blue's abilities as well. Blue becomes frustrated with her mother and half-aunt and leaves for work with an ominous warning from Mora not to kiss anyone. I just want to say I'm a big fan of the chaos and the close-knit feeling of, mm-hmm. of Fox Way because it's the house that I grew up in had a very similar feel. Mm-hmm. Like, not quite as many people, right. but, but just, though it was a very small house and there were four of us and mm-hmm. just, you, there was nowhere to go where you weren't with in somebody. someone's, yeah. <laughs> there is a passage that really bothered me and my notes here ended up being kind of harsh, but Blue talks about hearing Orla talking to someone on the psychic hotline in the other room. And it's always really bothered me the way that Blue is judging Orla for the way that she talks on the the hotline. I kind of had to back off on this one because I felt like maybe I was being a little too harsh on Blue as a 16-year-old. But I was like, you know, Blue, stop slut-shaming Orla. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. It's valid. It's yeah, valid. It, but but also, she's also 16. Mm-hmm. They have a very contentious sibling-style relationship. I said worse things to my brother, I'm mm-hmm. sure, when I was 16. He and I were terrible to each other. So... 
I had to back myself. I reeled myself in on that one mm-hmm. because honestly, there's there's also like internalized misogyny that you got to deal right. with and like the fact that blue is has been told her entire life that she can't have that what kind Orla of relationship has, right and yeah and to be fair we don't see blue really interact with anyone female other than her family mm-hmm. there's a little bit with a co-worker Cielina, and there's a little bit with some classmates in the raven king mm-hmm. but we don't see blue interact with females at all no so not really it's really hard to take this instance of Blue kind of being prickly and judgmental as being an example of Blue being not great about those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It's always bothered me personally. And, and I can see how it could. Yeah. But I had to back off because I realized that all of these characters start off as terrible people. They really do. <laughs> they kind of do. They all start off as terrible people. They end <laughs> up as much, much better people at mm-hmm. the end. So... This is fine. I'm going to let that go. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting. There is a short scene much later in the chapter where Neve goes to answer the phone and it's a wrong number. And Maura says that they're one number off from a gentleman's escort service. <laughs> and I actually posit the hypothesis that Orla chose that number on purpose so that every time someone misdialed and thought they were calling a gentleman escort <laughs> service that she could actually then talk to them uh-huh. and get money out of them. I posit the hypothesis <laughs> that, that that she's capitalizing on the missed calls. Mm-hmm. I really like the easy conversation mm-hmm. between Blue and Mora. I think it's really sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, Mora's response to Blue's question of why Mora didn't wake her up for school, it makes me laugh every time. Yeah. Yeah. I told the school you had the flu. I emphasize vomiting. Remember to look peaked tomorrow. I know. I love that, too. I like the, you don't have to run everywhere. You do exchange because it's like mother, like daughter. Uh-huh. And, and they are very much alike in a lot yeah, of ways. And, and they have a very casual almost sisterly relationship which yeah that's the I word I was looking for too also had with my mom so I get on board with that I understand that and then that Neve continues to be creepy as fuck the quote Neve stared at Blue who tried to avoid eye contact uh-huh like, Neve is so very intense. creepy she is very much set up to be the villain I think from mm-hmm. from the get-go, I kind of w- totally wish that she had been. I it would have been kind of cool. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that. I would have liked to have seen Neve actually be effective. Yes. Mm-hmm. In this section, we also get a little more explanation about spirits and Blue's ability. Mm-hmm. Talks about Blue's confusion as to why she was so drained. Mm-hmm. And I like the line, it's because you let 15 spirits walk through you while you chatted with a dead boy. <laughs> Chiding her. And now Neve explains that Blue has a lot of energy, but not that much. Mm-hmm. Blue seems surprised at the idea that she has a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And that surprises me because Mora spends a whole lot of time, like every time the page of cups comes up, Blue talks about how often her mom will compare her with the figure on the card. Right, right. Talking about how much she, how full of, oh, how full oh, of potential. And and I'm also curious as to why the spirits of the church have never drained blue like this before, Mm -hmm. because she can't see them. So how how did she like keep out of the way? Right. Yeah. You know, like was it something that Mora did? Well, my understanding. Well, not my understanding. My 
my thought here is that she steps onto the corpse road as she's following Gansey. So she's stepping into the paths of the spirits that are coming through the church. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So she steps up onto the church steps with Gansey to stop him before he enters. She's getting hit by spirits that she can't see. That makes sense. Whereas normally she'd be up on the fence or up on the wall. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's my my feeling on that, my read mm-hmm. on it. And also um, the comment that Maura says she's taught Blue some things in regards to self-defense against, right. against the spirits. And mm-hmm. we never get a specific definition of, of what she means by that. Yeah, and I believe she's referring to kind of the bubble of light visualization that she uses against Noah and Adam mm-hmm. um, in Blue Lily, Lily Blue. Right. Uh, because it's a pretty standard protective visualization so that's probably what Mora. in fact i think she actually uses it in the raven boys maybe when neve is scrying out by the tree oh yeah yeah but i don't i cannot say for sure Mm -hmm. neve's surprised that this has never been a problem before and her suggestion that that she wonders how the spirits don't find blue even here at Mm -hmm. foxway indicates to me that that maybe foxway has a protection or warning spell on it me too mm-hmm and it can also explain why Noah can't or won't come into Fox Way until Kala invites him specifically in. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also feel like that's probably the fact. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. It also makes Blue's relationship to Noah make a lot more sense to me. Right. Just mm-hmm. because, like, well, because he's feeding off of her. Uh-huh. They don't know that at the time, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Blue and Mora have a conversation about Gansey and fate. Mm-hmm. So Mora is certain that there's there's nothing that can be done to stop Gansey from dying or Blue from meeting him. Mm-hmm. Blue both knows that her mother is right because she's like, Foxway seems to be more speci- more often about specifics than they think or admit. Right. So she both knows her mother is right and is determined for her not to be. Yeah. Yeah. She already feels a connection to and responsibility for Gansey, like the phantom sensation she felt before, the, the strange grief. And his normal existence in the kitchen being right. her, making him her responsibility. Right. And then there's when Blue is getting grumpy about everything. And she's like, fate is a very weighty word to throw around before breakfast. Mm-hmm. And whereas like everyone else had breakfast a very long time ago. And that, that kind of gives me the impression that Mora doesn't seem to think you can fight fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone else has already kind of accepted who they are. And mm-hmm. So I have a question. There's this whole discussion about how Blue can't really talk to Gansey about what's going on. Mm -hmm. The question is, what moral responsibility do the psychics have to warn people that they're going to die? That's a good question. Because Blue says in chapter one that she's been doing the church watch for 10 years since she was six years old. So did Noah walk past Blue seven years ago? Uh huh. And if they went back in the records, would they find his name? And would Mora have been able to see that he was murdered? Yeah. I mean, I don't. They, we don't get any description of what the spirits look like. So could Mora have minority reported, like mm-hmm. Noah? As, yeah, that's a good as, question. And stopped it from happening. I mean, what would you do? And where do you think that like, really they need to fall on that? Because I do think there's a moral ambiguity to the fact that they're making money off of people's mm-hmm. death. But then again, they don't, there's not a whole lot of specifics. Like, and we don't know and what the spirits look like. And it's a very small possible audience. Right. Mm-hmm. I just, I, that is one of the things that keeps me up at night. 
not, <laughs> not literally. But. I love. Yeah, I love this. Uh-huh. It's, um, I think it's probably my favorite part of this chapter. Mm-hmm. We're sitting with them as they're as they're scrying in the Pre- grape juice. Prepping, yeah, prepping the mm-hmm. scrying bowl. And Blue is trying to center herself. Neve is trying to center herself. Well, Blue is too. She's trying to quiet. Oh, she's trying I to see, quiet I herself see, to not. Uh, right. There's there is interfere. a yeah. There is a note where Neve says, "I need everyone to be quiet." And I I had a note. Does she mean psychically quiet or mm-hmm. physically quiet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can see why Blue specifically would take that as psychically quiet. Right. Blue was suddenly very aware of being surrounded by trees. I'm having a sense of being in the middle of a still wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is working on like a bunch of different levels, like so many other things in this in these books. First, it's simply a reaction to her surroundings because it's the light from the trees outside, playing through the trees right. outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, second, it's caves water, which she's looking, which they're about to look into. Right. And third, I almost it's, wonder if it's caves water or the cave underneath caves water. Because she says he goes into a dark place. That's true. So I, I always pictured it as the cave. And and like third, it's the fact that she's a tree light. Like she's Tiralinthe. Mm-hmm. And the trees, they speak to her and they make her feel calm and together. And there are a couple of other interesting things about the scrying scene. Mora's comment that she won't be responsible for anything that Neves sees makes me wonder how much Mora actually knows about Caves Water and the Ley Line. I don't think she knows a ton. But it's it's an interesting question to like think about. Right. My question is not so much how much does she know, but how much of what she knows is she hiding uh-huh. from Neve and Blue? That's the more interesting question for me. She's obviously hiding quite a bit, but mm-hmm. why? Why? Does yeah, she not? exactly. Also, we never get a really good explanation of how or where Mora found or met Artemis. Yeah, it's not a great explanation, but there's an explanation when Artemis is talking about the Tiralentes and he says basically that Mora was. Well, Mora says that she was doing a ritual uh-huh. in a different scene, and Artemis says that she came to speak with the trees. Uh-huh. So one would say that basically the trees heard her, and therefore she called him out of Caves Water. Uh-huh. A question I have, Ronan actually dreamed up the physical Caves Water, right? Like, that, that, that was manifested by him. Yeah, he manifests Caves Water, the forest, but... This is one of those, like, it's not ever made clear because he dreamed the form into the waking world, but Caves Water existed before Mm -hmm. then. And so perhaps if the ley lines had been strong, it would have been manifest on its own. Mm, And I actually have a hypothesis regarding that because maybe when Welk sacrificed Noah, Mm -hmm. it woke up the ley line just enough to give Ronan the power to manifest Caves Water. That would actually make a lot of sense. So how long ago did Ronan start manifesting Caves Water? That's a good question. Did Caves Water start to manifest itself and needed a dreamer to do that and therefore reached out to Ronan and therefore That's, Ronan manifested mm-hmm. it? But they brought Glendower to that spot because it was powerful. Right, exactly. And yeah, the dots don't always perfectly connect in that explanation. Right. That actually makes a lot of sense. And then Blue's thoughts on Mora's comment that she won't be held responsible 
that this made this thing that they did seem bigger than it usually felt. Mm-hmm. Further away from a trick of nature and closer to religion. Well, what religion are they actually? Because most people like them that I know mm-hmm. are, are Wiccan. Right. I feel that they're eclectic pagan, but maybe that's because that's what I am. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to picture that. Kala definitely pulls out some statues of Ocean and Orishas in the beginning of the Raven King. So those are Nigerian gods. And so I believe that they were transported to the Afro-Caribbean. But... We can always do a deep dive on that later. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Right. But it's not for another three books. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just like to point out, like, if they are Wiccan mm-hmm. or, or like, you know, even like pagan of any description, that's, uh, let's say, sternly frowned upon right. in the Bible Belt where they are. Right. And of course, there's a, an added layer to Blue's thought here, too, because um, Gansey's quest, which Blue is about to join, is much bigger than anything she's dealt with before. And it's probably bigger than anything that Mora has told her about the stuff that she's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another layer even when you think about that it's scrying around the ley line that gets mm-hmm. Neve killed. And so Mora is expecting it when Neve loses track of Gansey when she's scrying. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like what she loses track of is presumably caves water. And and if the not responsible comment didn't cement right. that, then the the triumphant look after it happens like absolutely does. Right. Yeah. It brings to mind to Blue all the times that Mora refused to leave Henrietta, mm-hmm. um, even when it seems like leaving would be the better choice economically or just for the two of them. Again, I I'd, I'd really like to know exactly what Mora experienced back when she met Artemis. It's, it's all obvious. we get our hints. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All we get are hints about a lot of the stuff with the the backstory, the and right. I, like I would love to do to, to know more about that. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, and there's another sort of blue mission statement that there's the realization that even if you discovered the future, it really didn't change how you live in the present. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And then Mora's mission statement for Blue is, I always wanted an eccentric daughter. I just never realized how well my evil plans were working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you raised her, Mora. You should know what you, what, what hath Mora wrought, right? There is a theme throughout the books about desperately wanting to look on the outside, how you feel on the inside. And that's represented with Gansey and the pig and Monmouth and his journal. He uses those to sort of reveal his true heart. And Ronan uses his tattoo and his shaved head and his thumping music and his baby raven. I love Jason. I know. And Adam uses his ambition for the future, his immaculate but worn sweater, his German car advertisements. (laughs) He doesn't have much. I mean, it's an ad out of a magazine. That's all Adam has. And then his dreams of the stainless steel condo in a dustless city. Mm -hmm. And then Blue, she shreds her clothing and she clips her hair up and it shows that she's different from her classmates. And then we close with one last more mission statement for Blue. I don't have to tell you not to kiss anyone, right? (laughs) Maybe? (laughs) Question mark? And with that, we're going to wrap up our analysis of the prologue through chapter three. Next would be, we were going to nominate most valuable characters of this particular set of chapters. I would like to nominate Henry's Aglenby sweater. (laughs) 
Yes. I I uh, like I mentioned it earlier and I know yes. that you you were the one who actually pointed out to me right. that that's that that's his sweater at once. Yeah, and and the reason is because it is it might not be the longest payoff. I mean, Glendower himself. Well, actually, no. Glendower hasn't been mentioned yet. Yeah. So this is so actually this might the... be the longest payoff in the books. <laughs> I counted how long it takes to pay off Henry's sweater. It is one thousand five hundred ninety-two pages before we see Henry's sweater again. <laughs> I would like to nominate Henry's Aglaby sweater. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I will say Mora, actually. Yeah. He, so the other characters, we're just getting an introduction to them, and mm-hmm. there's a whole lot to love. But with Mora, there's already immediately these questions about her backstory, and mm-hmm. like she's both really warm, and you want to know like more about her. Mm-hmm. And it brings up a lot of questions about what she knew in regards to like the ley lines and stuff like we talked a lot right, about right. before well so how are we gonna do this is it going to be a thunderdome situation where no <laughs> um <sighs> technically henry's sweater is not a character um <laughs> more is pretty great here i don't know i <laughs> the payoff for henry's sweater is just <laughs> so so can we officially say Henry's sweater is the most valuable character? Sure. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> expect more silly most valuable characters from me in the future. <laughs> I've already told Shannon what some of them will be. So and they're pretty good. Yeah. Maggie Watch 2017. I just wanted to talk about some of the things that are upcoming for Maggie Stiefvater. She is releasing a new book. By the time you hear this, if you don't already know that, I don't know what to tell you. All the Crooked Saints release date will be 10-10-17. That's October 10th, 2017. She has some tour dates up on her website. She's going to be in San Francisco on 10-10, the day of the release, and on 10-11. In Montrose, California on 10-14. In Denver, Colorado at a convention on 11-4, so November 4th. In Ontario, Canada on 11-7, Urbana, Illinois, and I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, November 15th. And if you want more information, you can go to maggiestiefodder.com appearances. And this has been Maggie Watch. That has been Maggie Watch. (laughs) And with that, we are going to wrap up our first episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Our next episode will cover chapters four through eight of The Raven Boys with a deep dive on Jeffrey and Monmouth by me. Yes, I'm excited (laughs) because I know some stuff, but hopefully there will be more that I will learn. Um, However, our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of the release schedule, so follow us online for announcements of what chapters we will be covering next. And please send us your thoughts, because we'd absolutely love to hear your contributions to the conversation, any questions you might have, any theories, fan casts, etc. Yeah, we we definitely want to talk to people. We do. Um, Yeah, and you can find us practically everywhere on social media. We're at Raven Girls, R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S on Twitter. 
and at ravengirls on Facebook and at tumblr.com at ravengirls.tumblr.com and you can reach us directly at ravengirls r-a-v-i-n-g-i-r-l-s at gmail.com you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via gmail at substance party with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. And if we have referenced a post or an article in the podcast, we will do our best to include the source links in the show notes. There's going to be a, a ton about St. Mark's Eve. And the Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Stiefvater and Scholastic Incorporated. So we hope you've enjoyed the episode today. And until until next time, whoop whoop, Raven Girls! We did it! My note here is I'm just gonna highlight everything about Ronan. <laughs> my other note to myself is it's cool. <laughs> I think I gave up on like page 